G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that goes where others don't. The show that rejects partisan squabbling and tribal groupthink. I'm Josh Zepps. I'm your humble warrior princess, hunting down the world's most fascinating minds to wrestle with one provocative question each week. Much of modern culture and politics and media is tailor-made, especially social media, tailor-made to pander to what we already believe and distort what we don't, to reinforce our biases and exaggerate our differences. But change doesn't happen in an echo chamber. It's time to leave the mental comfort zone, to flex our minds and step on some landmines, folks. It's time to have uncomfortable conversations. Today on the show, Michael Slepian, an academic who studies secrets. He works at Columbia Business School, previously was a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He has a PhD from Tufts University, and he's an elected fellow of the Society of Experimental Social Psychology. He studies the psychology of secrets, how keeping secrets affects all the things that govern our lives, our social lives, our organizational lives. He studies, yes, the psychology of secrecy. Enjoy as much as I did, the one and only Michael Slepian. I am right on the river. I can overlook it and see New Jersey on the other side. Oh, how lovely. Can see, can see some good sunsets uh, if I'm at work very late because uh, the sunset's late now, thankfully. Thank God we finally got there. I miss it. I was just back for the first time in December as Omicron was going crazy. Uh, and uh, oh, yeah. All of my social engagements were like, would, were felled like one by one as people would be like, ah, now I got it. Now I got it. Now I got it. Yeah, there was one day where just everyone yeah, it got was, it. <laughs> it was funny. Um, and I lived in New York for up until a few years ago for for twelve years, and uh, and hadn't been back since since before the pandemic. And yeah, it was funny. It was mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is a? Well, let's get let's get started with with the basics. What what is a secret? I define secrecy as the intention to withhold information from one or more people, and so the information is the secret. Is it different depending on why I'm doing it? No. So for whatever reason, you want to hold that information back. You want to intend to keep it a secret. And whoever you're keeping it from, whether it's one person or 100 people, I would call it a secret. Right. Does it matter whether I'm doing it as an act of commission or an act of omission if I'm just allowing a, a misperception to slide without correcting it? This is so. This is what's so handy about the definition of secrecy as an intention. And so however you need to keep your secret, whatever actions you need to take or don't take, it's still a secret as long as you intend to hold it back from one or more others. And is it wrong to do so? This is a harder question. <laughs> uh, so when it may be wrong to hold a secret back is if someone would feel that they have the right to know that information. Um, you know, you can imagine your romantic partner who feels that they should have access to certain kinds of information about you. 
if someone is being hurt by not knowing the information, then also it might be wrong to keep it. And let's not bury the lead here. You had a big secret withheld from you by your parents. What was that and how did you find out? So what's happening on this day, this is in 2013, I am, I've just been doing secrecy research for maybe only a year at this point, or maybe a couple of years actually at this point in time. And so it's very new. And I'm presenting this research as part of a job interview at Columbia. And um, the whole day is about sharing and showcasing this research on secrecy with uh, the folks who had become my future colleagues. And that day is a long one. It then goes all the way to dinner where I'm out to dinner with the folks. And then I continue on. We get some drinks at a bar. So very long day we're, we're talking about here. And around midnight, I get a call from my dad. And that's really surprising that he would call me out of the blue, let alone around midnight. And then I saw a few minutes later, he called a second time. And so I became really concerned that something bad has happened. And so when I finally call him back, he says, Michael, I, you know, I need to talk to you. Maybe you should sit down for this. And he then tells me that he is not biologically able to have children. He was telling me that he's not my biological father. And as you might imagine, that's incredibly shocking to learn. Um, the new reality, though, I, I immediately accepted it, even though it was it was shocking, you know, to learn also my younger brother, my only um, sibling who was born five years later, is in fact my half-brother, um, conceived from a different donor. That might have been even been more shocking. But I readily decided I'm okay with this. You know, my dad is still my dad, and, you know, I don't choose my friends based on genetics, so what does it matter? if I have a genetic connection to my parents, that was what was going through my mind. But it was the secret keeping that was harder to understand. It turned out that my entire family, everyone apart from me and my younger brother, had known about this secret the whole time. And how did you ask them why they'd made that choice? The first question I had after I learned about that my brother was conceived from a different donor was, why are you telling me this? And why now? And as far as why they were telling me about it, then it turned out that my brother had learned just a few days ago, um, which is another story. But they were like, we have to tell you too, of course. And they very kindly waited until after my interview was over. <laughs> and wait, he'd learned against their will? So... My brother, a few days before this, was on the phone with my mom, our mom, and she was talking about a recent argument she had had with um, her father, our grandfather, and just mentioning it offhandedly. And my brother was like, that's so weird. You don't ever have arguments with him. What were you arguing about? And she said, oh, I can't tell you. And he was like, no, tell me. I want to know. And she said, oh, I can't. I promised. Uh, it's actually secret. And I promised I would never tell you. <laughs> and so that's that's a great way to make someone pester yeah. you in, until you reveal it. Uh, and that's what and that's what happened. That's extraordinary. So I, I'm trying to get my head around the ability to hold a secret for that long and then blunder into revealing it. Do you? What do you suspect was going on in your mum's mind? There, do you think there was some desire to? 
get it out because she could have just not talked about that conversation to begin with. Yeah, years later, years later, I would ask my mom about this and you're right. She would say the same thing that she thinks at the end of the day, she must have wanted that secret to have come out. And that's what happened. Had she consciously thought that she would take it to her grave? That was the plan. Hmm. Did you ask her why? Questions I started asking much later, especially when I started writing this book, included, you know, when did you start considering revealing this secret? I also asked, what was it like to keep this secret? To the first question, I was shocked when I asked, you know, at what point did you first start considering revealing this secret? And she asked me when my first paper on secrecy came out. It was my own research that had changed her thinking or had started to change her thinking. And to the second question, you know, she told me that it wasn't hiding it in conversation that made that secret difficult. To your point, all you have to do is just not say it. It's not like my younger brother and I were ever asking questions about our genetics mm. anyway. So it's not like it came up in conversation a lot. And it's not that it was difficult to hold back in conversation when it became relevant to the conversation. But rather, she said what was difficult about that secret was having to think about it in her thoughts and start wondering, have we made the right decision? And that maps so well onto what I was finding in my research at the time, which is it's not that it's not the moments where we're in a conversation and holding a secret back that seem harmful. It's all the other moments when we're thinking about the secret alone in our thoughts. Mm. I love that you sort of forced her to to out herself through your work. She's like, damn it, I thought I was going to be able to hold on to this forever. And now my son goes and does his, his, devotes his damn life to keeping secrets, and I'm going to have to deal with this. Um, it's interesting that, that she, I mean, I, I wonder what you think that your parents were thinking in in concluding that it would be best for you, you guys not to know this, like what, what is the, what is the great harm in your knowing it that's being avoided by withholding it? The concern was that if we were to ever learn this information, we would feel less a part of the family, particularly of course, my father's side of the family. Do you have siblings? So he can't, he doesn't have any biological children. That's correct. So there would have been no like envy between you and the quote unquote real kids. Correct. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, a, a member of my family uh, has children who were conceived using a donor egg and they're still little, so they haven't been told yet. My children were born through IVF because I'm married to a guy so there it's obvious. And so like, we know that that's, that secret can't be a secret, right? I mean, it's a mm-hmm. secret because they're currently four years old in the sense that they don't really understand how biology works yet, but we talk about it openly. And I'm, I'm somewhat grateful that for the biological necessity of not having the option of having to choose whether to keep that a secret. And I'm grateful that I'm not in the position that my friend is in where they have to kind of figure out how to have that conversation Do you have advice about how people navigate that? Yeah, more generally, the problem here is it's really hard to find the right time 
to reveal a secret, especially a really big one. And so for my parents, especially in our earlier years, there was no conversation to be had. You know, the idea of donor conception would be too complicated when we were too young. Now, of course, there was a point at which we could understand it very well. And then there was a point at which we were both adults and could very much understand it. And it's like, whoops, we, you know, our children are adults now and we never told them whatever your secret is about, if it's something that you are thinking it's time to reveal and you're waiting for that perfect moment to reveal it, it pretty much never comes. You pretty much have to make that situation for yourself. It's not going to just present itself typically. Is it, uh, I mean, I think I suspect that part of the solution here is to try to downplay the magnitude of the reveal by weaving it into everyday conversation from an early age. I mean, that's that's certainly my policy with my kids, which is just to talk in a matter-of-fact way about grown-up things, even if they don't understand them yet, uh, and just find ways to just include them in conversation about, oh, you were in this woman's tummy, or, oh, you know, you... You know, you came from, you know, we got a special gift from another person who was the, you know, the, the blah blah They don't understand it at the age of three. They will understand it at the age of 10. At some point, there's an incremental sliding scale at which their self-awareness becomes such that they're capable of asking further probing questions. Is that a way of avoiding the, like, we have to sit down and have a gigantic talk? Like, I can imagine a universe in which your parents just made it part of dinner table conversation that you guys were, uh, you know, a special gift from somebody because you know daddy needed it and uh so that's what happened and then that sort of opens the the door just a crack to further conversations without having to have a magician's flourish about it is that an option i think that's exactly right and that's something they could have done in my particular situation i guess as with many other people's situations it was a little more complicated than that because My dad's mother, my grandmother, really also did not want us to learn this secret. And so she was part of this story as well. That's an interesting thing. Tell me about her. She, when I learned that I wasn't biologically related to my dad and his parents, the thing that came to my mind first was, wow, I... My his parents they're both they're both passed passed away um, now, but me and my brother were so close with them, and you know, and, and so inspired by them, and and thought so highly of them, and to learn that the nature of our relationship wasn't based in some sense of genetic obligation, it, it made those relationships for me more special, not less. Mm. And and so I sure wish I could have had a chance to talk about it in that way with them. And but had they died already by the time you found out? My grandfather, yes, but my grandmother, no. But she just saw it as this unfortunate betrayal of a promise and... We didn't... I didn't, I didn't express what I'm saying now, which I think is unfortunate. Mm. But that Why was not? the reality... I don't know. We we I don't think she wanted to talk about it. Right. Ugh, it's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it, to think that yeah. she thought that you would have perceived her as being less than. Yeah, and it, it would be exactly the opposite. Mm. Is there a character type that she fits into that you see in your work on secrets? Um, I have a 
a family member who takes it as their responsibility to make sure that everybody else is protected, I suppose, and and they they conceive of themselves as being the the orchestrator of the entire family unit, where things have to be withheld strategically, truths have to be managed, revealed uh, strategically, you know, offences prevented from being taken, uh, and it becomes this enormous kind of emotional burden for this person where they regard themselves as being the conductor of this vast orchestra of truths and untruths. And I sometimes wonder, what's the point? Like, people will deal with things as they deal with them. You don't know exactly how person X is going to deal with secret Y, and it's not actually your responsibility in the first place to be in charge of that. Like, they're a grown-up, let them live their their lives. Was there a bit of that in your grandmother? Yeah, I, I think she was trying to protect us. I think that she she was thinking about this information as was my father as just something medical and you know you're you don't need to know every medical detail about your parents and that's just how they thought about it and i don't think they were very bothered by keeping this secret and and i think it was you know my mom who not at first and not even years not even in early years but in later years started thinking that perhaps it wasn't the right decision but this this just goes to show how complicated things are when so many people are implicated in a secret. Um, and when you think about the typical secret that we keep, it usually just implicates us uh, for the most part, maybe a second person. And, and I've not thought about it in this way, but how lucky we are. It doesn't feel that way when you're thinking about your secrets, um, but it's actually quite lucky when they don't involve so many people because the decision isn't so complicated and isn't so fraught. Mm. Do we sometimes rationalize to ourselves that uh, a lie or a, the keeping of a secret is to spare someone else's uh, feelings and that, you know, it's a white lie when in actual fact we're just trying to not get our hands dirty and, and deal with reality? In other words, it, we camouflage self, a self-serving mot- motive as, as empathy. We're definitely, when it comes to most secrets, trying to protect something, whether it's our reputation a loved one's feelings, a relationship with someone, someone else's relationship with someone else. And when it is something truly that's, you know, like what we call white lies, most people agree that that is okay to do and actually kind. Um, If you've just arrived at a party with someone and they say, how does my outfit look? And it's far too late to change. It's better to be nice than to be brutally honest and hurt someone's feelings for no reason, especially when they can't do anything about it. Now, when is something not a white lie, even if there's sort of degrees of it, that's a tough decision. And so it's really important to ask yourself, why are you keeping this secret? To help you understand. Yeah. I mean, you're speaking as if it's a given that it's better to tell the, to lie to the person about their outfit. But I know some people like my friend, Sam Harris has a very black and white attitude towards lying. He would, he would say actually in the long run, it's going to be better for everyone not to insult the person, but to, to just say, you know, there, I've seen, I've seen you in better things, but you look, you look fine. (laughs) Um, uh, or find some tactful way of being honest because the credibility that you bank from doing so uh, 
means that the person a will trust you and b won't feel like they're wandering through life surrounded by sycophants who always just say what you want to hear they'll um you know they'll they'll be getting a true a truthful reflection of the way that they're they're passing through the world what do you make of those hardline uh, truth tellers if we're talking about white lies even there i don't agree because the timing matters you it, you can be very helpful to that person if you talk about if you unsolicited be like hey what if you try this other outfit? I think as you're walking into the party, it's not the right time to to be radically honest. Timing matters. Um, let's talk about big lies. What what does Edward Snowden tell us about secrets? He is this fascinating case, and he's he's describes his experience with secrecy so well, and and it's such a well written autobiography where he talks about his secret. His secret is that he's going to be a whistleblower. Um, he's uncovered that the NSA has been secretly engaging in mass global surveillance, and and for him, he sees this as directly opposing what the NSA is supposed to be doing, which is protecting civil liberties, not violating them. But this is a huge action that he's about to or that he does undertake because it means he has to flee the country and and never come back perhaps and uh, because it's technically illegal what he did and so he's making this incredibly tough decision all on his own he spends six months carefully selecting documents and carefully sending them to journalists and then has to flee the country um, to meet those journalists and his fundamental experience with us having the secret was that of feeling isolated and alone. And, you know, it's it's almost impossible to imagine what it was like to be him, to what it's like to learn this, like, massive secret that your government is, is doing something that you consider to be wrong. And that's this incredible story. But his experience is, is totally common. This is the primary experience we have with secrets that are much more mundane. We feel alone with them. What does that do to us? It turns out that when we choose to be alone with something, especially something big or upsetting or something that bothers you or something that you know you need to work on, when we choose to be alone with that thing, we don't develop healthy ways of thinking about that thing. And that's where the harms really come in from counterproductive thinking, harmful rumination. We all know the, kind of, the, the, the sense of being unburdened by sharing a secret that we've been holding on to. Does it matter who we're unburdening it to? I mean, is a, is a therapist an ersatz friend who is serving the, the role of the, the kind of secret taker to take it off your shoulders in some way? There are people who are better choices and worse choices when it comes to choosing a confidant. And so people who generally are very good confidants are people who are compassionate, someone who will be non-judgmental, caring, kind, empathic. Another quality that turns out to be really helpful in a confidant is someone who is assertive, someone who will push you to do the thing that you need to do. As far as what qualities make someone a less good confidant, confidant um, that includes someone who's overly concerned with rules and norms they tend to not be as attractive as confidants and then 
someone who is a talkative social butterfly. People also get a little <laughs> nervous about confiding in them. A- another really important consideration when choosing who to confide in is, is if what you're going to tell this person is going to totally scandalize them, it's probably not the best choice, by which I mean if they have a very different set of morals as you do, uh, that could create some problems. And so if someone finds what you just told them to be really morally objectionable, they're more likely to tell a third party essentially as a form of punishment. Right. Don't tell my Mormon uncle about my best reality. <laughs> is the rule of thumb. Yeah. Uh, why, uh, why is a rule follower a bad confidant? For the same reason, someone who'd be more concerned about the rules than, than you know, helping you cope with a secret. Right, I see. Yeah, I mean, that, in that case, Snowden is an interesting case. And the, the question of whether or not you're doing something wrong when you breach the trust of a vast institution rather than breaching the trust of an individual is, I think, one of those unspoken things that we're grappling with when we think about things like Snowden and Assange. I recently interviewed Julian Assange's father. There's a, a two-part documentary about his struggle to, to free Assange. Um, and, you know, I sort of asked him about, I pushed him about what he thinks of the morality, about what Julian did, potentially having endangered people's lives by dumping hundreds of thousands of pages of documents onto the web without any uh, any of the normal kind of redactions and contextualization that a journalist might undertake. And Assange's father got quite emotional and said that in the in comparison to the crimes of Western governments in destroying countries and invading people and killing a million Iraqis, <clears throat> how can you possibly claim that the person who's really guilty here is the person who spills the beans on things in a clumsy way rather than the person rather than the people who in a meticulous and orchestrated way have destroyed a half dozen countries and created tens of millions of refugees. Um, I guess that lands to someone who's thinking about a moral calculus and probably doesn't land to someone who who values the protocols and procedures that set up the infrastructure of secrets that that kind of permit modern democracies to to function how do you think about that yeah i think that's entirely right and and snowden in, in trying to justify his choices made the point that he didn't just do this, you know, huge data dump, that he very carefully selected the documents that would help people understand the programmatic secrecy that was happening or, or, you know, not programmatic secrecy, the programmatic secrecy around what they were doing specifically. Yes. And in some ways that's the difference between what, between a Snowden and an Assange, yet they do get sort of conflated in, the public consciousness um it's hard to know what do you make it like what do you make of the ethical angle there you know i spoke to a military person when i was in the states who was saying you know these guys knew the rules they knew the rules that they were breaking they knew the consequences for breaking them so you do the crime you do the time i think it's a fascinating question because in there's this conflict right between what you think is the right choice and what is the right choice according to some other person or or body and we can see this in much more everyday examples if you've cheated on your partner should you tell them 
And of course, obligations of honesty and openness dictate that you should. But at the same time, especially if this was a one-time thing, if it's just going to wreck your partner and destroy your relationship, someone else could say you're doing the right thing by keeping it a secret, even though that's hard. And even though you're supposed to be honest with your partner. Hmm. Do we set ourselves up with too many expectations of fidelity and honesty such that keeping secrets becomes the cost of doing business? Certainly when it comes to romantic partners, there's this pretty clear norm of honesty and, and openness. And of course, I think for our best friends, we also expect something similar, I think, in, in family members, perhaps in certain situations as well. Definitely the closer we are to someone, the more we expect them to be open with us. And we would hope that they could reveal something to us, even though it would be difficult to do so. Of course, when it becomes difficult to do so, people start wondering whether they should Do you think we keep more secrets or fewer secrets in this era than we have in past? Hmm. So in some ways, I think we keep fewer, especially when I think about, you know, generations and how we've changed over different generations. I think, you know, I even think this kind of family secret that we were just talking about of my own, I bet that's going to be less common today than, you know, than the 80s, which was when I was born. And I think we are starting to understand that there's a good reason to have these conversations sooner. If for no other reason, people can find out this information by accident all the time now, thanks to genetic testing. And so I think, Mm. I think as society changes, as we, you know, I think, I think my stereotype of of, um, kids today is they're much more emotionally competent (laughs) than when I was a kid. Uh, I just think as, as we change a little bit, over the years as a society, we people recognize the the value of having honest conversations, even when they're difficult. There's definitely a recognition of the value of having honest conversations. But I also wonder whether that's spilling over into a performativity around authenticity that's becoming its own load of bullshit, so to speak. Um mm-hmm. There's a whole there's a whole kind of way of doing Instagram and TikTok, which is about the oversharing and like I'm going to be brutally honest with you now. Like I'm opening up to you in a way that I, you know, that I haven't before. And you know, well, this is so phony, but I'm real. And like the real deal is that you know I, I'm not perfect. And I, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know whether that is actually the detonation of secrets or the construction of a complicated artifice of secrets presenting itself as authenticity i think it's the second especially when you learn about you know folks who present themselves as as leading this glamorous life and full of you know all these good things but then in reality you know that person is not happy or you know they're they're putting up some kind of front and so i think social media of course, enables us to be far more open than we have ever before. We can just broadcast something out to the world. But at the same time, to your point, there's this competing motivation of self-presentation, which we have in the real world too. But there's something very different about it when it comes to social media. I agree. Mm. I mean, the something very different might be that you are 
you are rewarded for seeming not to be phony. Like I think that 10 years ago, there was a lot of look at how beautiful and glamorous my life is. And there is still some of that, but I think people have cottoned onto that and they, they're aware of the artifice. Now I, I feel like people are more rewarded for being like, I may be leading a glamorous life, but you know, warts and all, I'm still a human just like you and watch me cry and emote about, you know, this or that and how socially progressive or like, I don't know how cutting edge I am in my, uh, in my moral <laughs> sanctimoniousness. Uh, and the people are getting rewarded for an openness that, I don't know. Maybe there was a, maybe it was better to be to have the bullshit look like bullshit and to have the secrets kept as secrets instead of pretending to reveal secrets and opening up the box and all all that's actually there is uh you know an attempt at relatability that's equally phony. The benefits people get from revealing a secret in the real world involve having a conversation with someone else where someone says, I'm here for you, or I'm listening, or someone gives you advice or guidance. And I suppose you could get taste of that in the comment thread of a post. But really, you want a dynamic, interactive conversation with someone to reap the benefits of revealing a secret and uh, it's hard to see people getting the same benefits when it's distributed across a bunch of really short comments on a, on a post. I, I think mm. you, it's the conversation that helps people do better. Um, that's what's so helpful about having talking about a secret. It's not just getting it off your chest. It's not just shouting it on the rooftops. It's having a conversation with someone you trust. That is what is helpful. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I, I was once asked by a, a British friend of mine who lives in Germany and uh, about what I've noticed about the differences between American culture and German culture when I spend I spend a lot of time in both countries. And I said, I think that I think Germans are just more empathic. I think there's more empathy. And he was taken aback by that because he said, I mean, I think of America as the land of empathy, as like Oprah and crying on shoulders and like, I feel your pain. And he said, I find Germans to be much more stiff upper lip and uh, less emotive. And I said, yeah, I, I don't mean sympathy. I don't mean like vomiting sympathy on each other in a performative way. I mean, sitting down with people, the cafes feel different. The way that people converse feels different. There just seems to be a greater connection between different strata of society in Germany and other Western democracies. I would also include that people are able to talk to each other from very different walks of life and kind of nail where each other are coming from in ways that I feel is, is harder in the United States. There's a bit more, I don't know, performativity, a bit more self-aggrandizement in the States, a bit more trying to get one's word in and trying to get one's way, whereas I felt there was a more kind of relaxed, cavalier, convivial, conversational interest in one another in Western Europe. And I think that that I'm reminded of that when I hear about you touching on what you just touched on. Have you noticed any, do you think there are any cultural differences either between communities within the States or have you, have you studied different countries? Yes. And so the way we've looked at this question is looking at what someone's environment is like and essentially how they 
whether they put themselves before the group or not. So for example, collectivism, when people prioritize the group over the individual, we see that that is associated with secrecy seeming to be more inauthentic. And we're, we're just, these findings are just coming in now. And so I don't know why, or I don't know the answers of why it works that way. But for some reason, when you care more about the group to have a secret from them, even though you might be keeping it to maintain group harmony, it for some reason seems to feel more inauthentic. To maintain group harmony, it feels more inauthentic than what? Sorry, I, it, they could be keeping a secret for all kinds of reasons. I suspect often it's it's to maintain group harmony um, in that context. But for some reason, holding back from close others in that context it feels more inauthentic relative to more individualist societies. Oh, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. What's so, a possibility? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, finish that thought. <laughs> as someone who's who's not in a collective society i just want to be like i don't know how it works like someone tell me uh but yeah. we're, we're just we're just figuring it out now well i mean it's interesting like in your scenario if you think of an east asian society for example it's highly likely that there would have been no question of ever telling you if the matriarch didn't want it right there would be much more i feel like much more of a communal secret keeping in a society that's that's more communal that's what I would assume too. And to me, that doesn't feel inauthentic at all, but it's, it's the individualist inside of me saying that it seems. Yeah. Right. Uh, what's a positive secret? Positive secrets are the fun ones. Um, for most of them, not all of them, there's an interesting, um, example that doesn't fit what I'm about to say, but for most positive secrets, the point of keeping them is to reveal them and this changes everything so you got you have your marriage proposal your surprise party some big extravagant gift that's a surprise um, a couple who's been trying to get pregnant and then they are pregnant we we keep these kinds of things secret in order to have this exciting reveal of this information and so positive secrets people feel good about them and that makes them very different but also people feel really in control over them and that also makes makes for an important difference. And so people don't feel burdened and fatigued by these kinds of secrets. They feel excited and, and energized by them. These kinds of secrets seem to be good for your well-being. Good for the well-being of the person keeping the secret or good for the well-being of the person from whom the secret is being kept? The person who's keeping the secret. And so even though it's just like with all our other secrets, you have to be very careful about what you say. You might be ruminating on this information. It might require a lot of effort to maintain the secret. And all of those things seem to be associated with positive outcomes when we're talking about a positive secret. Right. What about the person from whom the secret's being kept? Like suppose that I know that uh, someone is about to be proposed to and I'm getting all of this, uh, you know, excitement by planning the engagement party or the surprise or something, and it's all very fun behind the scenes. But the person themselves would actually rather it be a small, low-key affair without a whole lot of people knowing about it and without there being a lot of fanfare. Is there a way in which keeping positive secrets can become, again, a bit like the white lie you know, we rationalize it on the basis of, oh, this person is going to love love it when they find out the surprise. But in actual fact, we're just getting our rocks off on having a week of uh, of planning and knowing something that they don't. 
I think most of the time people do this in the right way where they have an understanding of whether their partner is going to be okay with an extravagant surprise party or a surprise proposal or, or something like that. But people do get it wrong. Um, and so you should, if you're good at, if you're thinking about a flash mob surprise marriage proposal <laughs> for, for your, for your partner, you should somehow find out whether they're into something like that, because you really don't want to put them on the spot and make them really uncomfortable in what is supposed to be such a happy moment. Um, marriage proposals is another good example. One of the best predictors of whether someone says yes to a marriage proposal is whether you've discussed marriage in advance. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's not a good idea to make a marriage proposal if you've never talked about marriage at all. Um, your proposal is more likely to get rejected. And so that's not something you want to happen on the Jumbotron. No, yeah, that's right. Uh, and are there ways of taking the benefits of positive secrets and applying them to negative secrets? This is the big question. This is something I am thinking about myself right now because we're also just learning about these positive secrets right now. For some of the most basic questions about secrets, we we're only just asking them recently. And so this is the question. Can we steal some of those benefits from positive secrets and apply them to your more prototypical negative secret? And I think the answer is yes. I, I think that we are in control over all our secrets. It just doesn't tend to feel that way. It, it feels that way with positive secrets. And so helping people understand that they have the same control over negative secrets as they do with positive secrets, positive secrets should at least help to some degree um, making people understand. It's not that the secret is controlling you, although it really does feel like that, but you're in control over this situation too. Also for most positive secrets, not all, um, the, the plan is to reveal them. And so if you think about your negative secret and think, well, is there ever a world where I would reveal this and when and to who, that might also might start, might help you feel better going forward if you feel like, okay, I, I know why I'm keeping this secret. I know where this eventually goes and, and where this will lead to. Now I feel jealous that... I don't have bigger secrets. Like I'm sort of scouring my mind for what I, what I could reveal, but I'm a bit of an open book. Does the phase of our life affect the secrets that we have? I would have thought that for those big personal life secrets, a lot of those get revealed by the time you're 30, like coming yeah. out. So yes, we have a good understanding of how secrecy changes throughout childhood and up through adolescence into early adulthood. But after that, it's a question that needs more research, just like how secrecy changes in, in our later adult years. In our earliest of years, uh, kids can only get into so much trouble. <laughs> and so the, the kinds of secrets they keep are, are pretty childhood sized, um, for lack of a better word, you know, wetting the pants, wetting, wetting the bed and, and things like that, getting into some mischief or an accident. Those kinds of secrets don't seem to be all that harmful. Um, and perhaps because, again, we're talking about little small indiscretions. Where we start seeing the harm in secrecy is adolescence. And that's when the concern becomes not about, you know, not getting scolded from parents, but about being afraid to open up because of fears of rejection and being concerned about social approval and, and saying the wrong thing and being concerned about what other people think. And, you know, coming out, of course, is, is a huge decision and, and very reasonably so people would be 
concerned about what are the consequences of doing that and would people accept you and and this is when secrecy is harmful essentially as soon as secrecy looks like that it, it becomes harmful and it's really similar to adult secrecy we keep secrets for the exact same reasons we're afraid of people thinking differently of us or we're afraid of what people will think and, and we feel like we don't know is there a difference between teaching kids about lying and teaching kids about secrets yeah, I, I think so. And I think it's pretty easy, you know, for adults to say this and that they'll, they'll lie about their own things, but to, to impart to their children that lying is wrong. I think that is true and it's a good thing to teach children. Secrets don't require lies to keep. And I think it's important to recognize that for everyone. Um, you, if you're keeping a secret, you have the right to do so in, in a lot of, in most every situation, even if revealing it is, is the right thing to do, but you don't have to lie to keep a secret. And, and I would advise anyone who has a secret to try not to, um, you can carefully do some conversational gymnastics to, to answer a question while holding the truth back, but without telling an outright lie. Telling an outright lie is actually some is the easiest way to keep a secret, but it's also the riskiest because that lie could one day be discovered. Mm. Although it is difficult doing those gymnastics, as your mother found, uh, like sort of saying, "Well, it's something that I can't tell you about." Yeah. All of a sudden, that just becomes something that the person absolutely needs to be told, doesn't it? With with the biggest secrets, we're kind of prepared for these moments. Fortunately, where we're kind of ready to to pivot and redirect the conversation. If you really don't know what to say, you could say, "Oh, I don't want to talk about this." Um, that might be offending. To, that might offend the other person. And so, a better version of that is, "Can we talk about this later?" Hmm. Yeah, although that's also a lie if you don't want it, right? And if you won't. <laughs> I think if you're if that's the thing you have to say at that situation, you have to start considering the world where you do reveal it later. It's actually a nice situation to be in um, because now you're like, oh, now I do have to talk about it. Like, how will I say that? How can I bring this up? Um, one of the hardest parts of having a secret, especially something you're starting to feel ready to reveal, is you're you're waiting for that perfect moment to reveal the secret and it never comes it, it's really it just really is rare that that perfect opportunity presents itself and so you could sort of force your hand in a way by making it clear that you eventually will talk about it mm. children don't seem to understand the that lying is wrong innately that seems to be something that gets taught in my experience they don't get that deceit is a bad thing uh how do you make the distinction between that and secrecy? Yeah, so that's an interesting one because in in their earliest years, the only way they know how to keep a secret is to physically hide their body or to try to cover up what they've done wrong or just lying. Um, I didn't eat any cookie. I didn't eat the cookies except there's like cookie crumbs on their lips. Um, denial is uh, is the most sophisticated way they have to keep a secret at that point in time. And it, I, I think you, the, the lesson to try to draw out is something around lies that could hurt people or lies that hide some problem, you know, things like that 
are going to make the problems worse. And so if it's a lie about cookies, it's it's a little different. But yeah, I don't <laughs> this seems to be a tough thing for parents that I, I don't envy their their positions here. It's no, so complicated. And I don't think I don't think that the wrongness can hinge on the severity of the outcome. There has mm-hmm. to be a deeper precept at work because you don't want the child constantly trying to figure out whether or not a lie is okay in this case or that, or a secret is okay in this case or that. I think they sort of have to be blanket rules. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe saying something like honesty is better in helping them understand there's a, there's a relative sense here that honesty yeah. is the better choice. Well, maybe we don't keep secrets from each other is a rule within the context of a nuclear family. I mean, maybe right. they, maybe you get special dispensation as a parent not to be lied to that other people don't earn. Um, what do we know about other mammals? Do we know whether other primates keep secrets? Chimps can do it. Um, and, and it's fascinating that they will, you can see them doing this in the wild and in Franz de Waal, the primatologist has some amazing stories about chimps keeping secrets. And some are very mundane, like, hiding the location of some some tasty food and some are a little bit more raunchy uh, that involve um, sex and um, trying to hide that essentially from from certain parties Um, some really entertaining stories (laughs) what's one of them Uh, so definitely the best one Um, so things to know um chimps have a bit more uh, direct form of courting <laughs> than, than humans. And so uh, a chimp might, to show his interest in a female, might just put a, an erect penis on display <laughs> to, sure. to show his interest. And I know some and guys that, do that. That, that. A chimp was doing this at the very moment an alpha chimp walked by. And that's that's a big no-no. You have to do that when the alpha chimp isn't isn't around, and it quickly right. covered it up with its hands, uh, trying to sort of conceal the the scene of the crime. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, what's your takeaway from all this? Is what's the what's the most practical thing that you have learned from your research? The most practical thing here is if there's a secret that you feel really unsure about, or is upsetting you, or is bothering you. You don't have to deal with it alone. You can still keep it a secret from the people that you don't want to know, but it would be, it's so helpful. The research is so clear on this to just find someone else that you could feel comfortable talking to, whether that's a trusted friend or someone removed from it all. There's so much to be gained from a conversation with another person that is so hard to find on your own, like finding Mm -hmm. a new perspective or getting validation or emotional support or advice. These are so hard to find on our own. But just bringing one more person in can can get us out of these negative thought loops and and get us on the road to doing better and, and better coping. Michael, it's uh, great to talk to you. It's a fascinating subject. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Will you stick around for first date questions? I'll pepper you with a yes. few first date questions for our uh, for our subscribers. If you are a subscriber, stick around. If you're not, I'll see you next week. Um, what would you do uh, with fifty million bucks if you won the lotto? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I certainly would want to travel a lot, uh, but I guess I would travel extravagantly. This is why <laughs> this is why it's great to not have children. <laughs> yes, indeed, that's the one big change when you have kids. Traveling becomes a lot more a lot more complicated. Uh, are you a traveler? Where have you been? 
Oh, uh, yeah, I'm a traveler, and it's it's certainly my wife, um, who's Australian, and you know Australians are so famous for traveling. She's been to like seventy something countries, and so I've I've traveled to many of those countries with her. Not as not as many though. Uh, we were just just a few weeks ago in Rwanda and Tanzania. Wow, what's the prettiest view you've ever seen? Hmm, that's a tough one. Surely water is involved. <laughs> oh man, I don't have a good answer to this. I don't know. Is it being some like large vista where you're like on a rooftop and like you're seeing the whole thing. You're speaking like you're just making it up, but you've traveled the world. There must be something, there must be something you saw. What, okay, what's the best thing you've seen from a plane? Okay. Um, well, just just the other day, we we saw some elephants from the plane over over flying around oh, Tanzania. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, sorry, my phone's just ringing there. Uh, what is that? Damn. All right, I'll cut that out. Uh, what's the most underrated city? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, underrated city i'm thinking of all the really appropriately rated cities <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay what's the most perfectly rated city oh i think i'm now i'm like cheating i'm not even answering your questions anymore i love copenhagen I, maybe it's underrated maybe people don't know just how amazing yeah, it is underrated. yeah i i, I it's beautiful looking Everything's so nicely designed because of, you know, Danish design. All the beers are so delicious because Danish beer is like where all the interesting stuff is happening. Uh, what's the best cuisine? It's it's not Filipino food. <laughs> I, I used to think that I was so worldly that I liked all food out there. And then I had Filipino food and I was like, oh, man, it's so, it's true. so, it's so weird, it's, isn't it? I'm just, just I'm, so I'm saucy about that. Why, you know, why are they the odd man out in Southeast Asia when there are so many great cuisines across Southeast Asia? I don't know. I, I cheated by not answering your question there. <laughs> you did. Yeah. I also yeah. love I also love Danish food. No. Yeah, I, I love just. A, a whole little fish that you just drop into your mouth. I love those open bread sandwiches. <laughs> okay. That's the most surprising first date question. I did not. I lived in Copenhagen for a semester and went to Copenhagen business school. And uh, I can't say that the culinary delights were my favorite a little, thing. A little pickled fish. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Whatever. It's fine. <laughs> when you're surrounded by like, France and even Germany. I don't think uh, I don't think you get very far selling me on a little pickled fish. Um, what's the best ice cream flavor? Oh, I, I was just the other day having. Um, you can't get it anymore, but um, this place, Van Leeuwen in New York, had uh, macaroni and cheese flavored ice cream, <laughs> and it it was it was delicious. It was so weird tasting and That's so, so wonderful too. That's so American. Only the only the United States could produce such a concoction. Um, uh, what's, uh, what's the thing that you keep finding yourself looking up on Google that you keep forgetting? You, you, oh, that I keep forgetting that changes my answer. Um, or that you don't keep forgetting, but why else would you keep looking it up on Google? <laughs> you mean like refreshing how many reviews are on my book? <laughs> okay, currently. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Cause it keeps changing. Yeah. Googling yourself, Googling your own name doesn't count. 
I, I also often search for my own. I, I email myself a lot too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, some sometimes you're trying to figure out how to spell something, and that's a really easy thing to just put into Google. Yeah, accommodate. I can never remember how many C's and M's are in it. I'm always googling accommodate. It's just stupid. <laughs> in every other respect, don't know how to spell that word. What's happening now that in 20 years people will look back on and laugh about? Ooh. Laugh about. Hmm. This is a good question. Deserves a good answer. The idea that maybe we would ever not be using Facebook or Uber and all these all these things. Maybe those will still be. I don't know if we would laugh at it though. Do you mean that people that they'll be so ubiquitous they that people won't believe we're not using them, or that they will have gone away and people will believe that we would be surprised we were using them? I mean, I think of the times where we like remember about like dialing up into the internet and like having to interrupt a phone call to do yeah. so. There must there's there must be things like that that will just be like, can you believe that you yeah. just have to wait for a computer to to turn on? Well, I th- I was th- I was talking the other day to a tech person and they were saying passwords, like the idea that you're memorizing passwords get into websites will seem that'll be something we're telling our kids about that they won't believe uh, i sure and hope so everything you know and facial recognition and all that sort of stuff like the fact that i get to work and i i type in a combination of letters and numbers and that we have to write them on post-it notes and stick them to the front of our monitors and things like that will seem cute totally uh it, one out of five times when i'm at the gym i somehow mess up the locker and have to get them to unlock it for me yeah, yeah that's right that won't be happening in 20 years um, and lastly, the time machine question, if you can go anywhere in the past or future and, you know, you can come back if you want and you can have whatever vaccinations you want before you go, where do you go? Oh, man, I would I would love to be in the like late 60s, early 70s and just see all those amazing classic rock acts. That would be so cool. Fantastic. Michael, you passed the first date. Uh, <laughs> thank you for being thank with you. us. Love Good to hear it. <laughs> Thanks. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.